Good afternoon, Merry Christmas to you all. As we celebrate this birth of the Lord, may the Lord bless you to the preaching of His Word entitled, The Fullness of Time, or in our own terms, The Right Time. A lady in America named Kathy Mulligan cooked her turkey for Thanksgiving on November 21st. However, her family and friends were set to come to her house on November 28th. That means she cooked her turkey one week earlier. Why the mistake? Well, because the free calendar she got from the local hospital indicated that Thanksgiving that year would be on November 21st. Isn't it that in life, right timing is very important? Getting the timing right could spell the difference between success or disaster. I googled a number of quotes about right timing and I found a few insightful ones. Here are three insightful ones about right timing and you be the judge if they are if they make sense. Someone said, "Timing is everything. If it is meant to happen, it will at the right time and for the right reasons." Sounds okay. Second one. Don't rush anything. When the time is right, it will happen. Yeah, it happens a number of times, right? Here a, here's a saying from Leo Tolstoy. I think he's a Russian novelist. He said, the two most powerful are patience and time. Right timing. The question is, how do you know when the timing is right for a desired activity or a thought-out plan? How do we discern when people or things are ready? How do farmers know when their fields are ripe for harvest? How do the fishermen know when it's a good time to go out to the sea? Well, of course, through observation, through experience, through experimentation and study, men have come up some methods and devices to know when is the correct time of doing certain things. Farmers know that their fields are ripe for harvest by looking at some things in their fields like the, the size and the color of the grains or the look of the leaves and the stems or the feel of the fruits or by calculating the amount of time that has elapsed from the time that they planted the seeds and the present time. Fishermen, they, they know that it's a good time to go out to the sea by looking at the weather or the time of the year, or the temperature of the water, or the pattern of migration of the fish they want to catch, and other telltale signs. You see, timing is important in life. Here's the thing. God is sovereign and all-powerful. He can do anything He wants, anytime He wants to do it. But the Bible teaches that in His very sovereignty and His wisdom, God also waits for the right time to do His thing, to fulfill His promises. He acts when He has already moved resources, arranged situations, or prepared people for the very thing He's about to do. He does not act haphazardly, and everything He does is thought out and planned for. Let me 
give to you a number. In fact, several verses from the Old Testament and the New Testament to prove my point. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1. Solomon spoke, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So there's a time to laugh and a time to cry, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Jeremiah 29.11, one of the favorite verses of the people of New Hope. The Lord promises people, I know my plans for you, plans to prosper you. So the Lord has plans for us, and plans often involve timetables or schedules. That's in the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. The Lord Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 4, verse 35, Open your eyes. And look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus is saying, the time is now for harvest. Romans 5 verse 5. The Apostle Paul writes, For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, Christ died for us sinners. Galatians 6 9, a popular verse. Paul says to those or getting weary. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Why? For in due season, in the right time, we will reap if we do not give up. And then there is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. God speaking through the Apostle Paul, he says to Christians, In a favorable time, I listen to you. Favorable time, right time, due season. I mentioned this numerous verses, and there are many other verses in the Bible to ingrain in our minds and to inculcate in our hearts that God does things at the right time. I mentioned this numerous verses, and there are other verses like this in scriptures, because we are often in a hurry, often impatient, often unwilling to wait, and easily discouraged. Christmas happened at the right time. The Savior came to earth at the precise moment when He was supposed to. Verse 4 of our text says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. So the Almighty, Sovereign, All-Powerful God waited for the right time to fulfill His promise of sending the Savior of the world. And our text uses the phrase, the fullness of time. The first Christmas happened in the fullness of time. Therefore, the second Christmas or the second coming of the Lord Jesus will also commence in the fullness of time. And so I'll try to explain what Paul meant or what the Old Testament or New Testament writers meant when they mentioned the word fullness of time. Fullness of time is that point in history set by God when He would fulfill what He promised or do what He plans to do. It's that point of time, that, that point in history when God has determined and decided that He will work out or put into place His plan, hatch many, many years or decades or centuries or millennia ago. 
Our problem is that our idea of fullness of time is often different from God's idea of fullness of time. Let us be reminded of what the Lord says in Isaiah 55, series of passages in Isaiah 55 that we had last month. The Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so for the next several moments, let's talk about this fullness of time as it pertains to the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are never in a hurry, but you are never late. And you are seldom early, but you are never late. Speak to us as we endure this pandemic, as we cannot wait to go out, as we yearn to hug each other or even shake each other's hands or see each other face to face, as we wait for the end of this unusual and very trying time on the earth. And after this, there are those of us who are going through challenges, personal and specific challenges in our hearts. And we hold on to your promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That you will rescue us. That you will provide for our needs. And you will do so in the right time or in the phrase of our text today, in the fullness of time. Lord, you are sovereign. You are omniscient. And you have set the fullness of time as it pertains to the course of history. But also when it pertains to our own lives. And until that happens... Keep us strong. Help us to be patient. Help us to be focused on you, waiting upon you, even as we would learn today, as you wait for us. Speak to us, Lord, for many or most or all of us need to hear from you, especially during this time. In Christ's name we pray. Let's talk about what the world was or what people were like during this fullness of time, our text speaks of when the Lord Jesus came. And so first thing we would learn that this so-called fullness of time, when God sent for the Son, was a time of various difficulties. Let me read to you Luke chapter 2 verse 1 to give us an idea what kind of period in history was this fullness of time when the Lord came. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So during that time, Israel, God's people, were under Roman occupation. They were ruled by an emperor that time named Caesar Augustus. So Israel that time was not free. They were under Roman occupation. Another nation was ruling and controlling the affairs of their nations. And because of that, they had to pay taxes. And because of that, when Romans forced them, they have to render free labor or service. And so, the fullness of time was a difficult time. The economic condition in Israel at that time was bad. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 to give us again 
an idea of what kind of period of time was this fullness of time. Matthew 2, 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. So the fullness of time happened during the reign of Herod the Great, and according to historians, it's one of the darkest period in Israel's history. He was made king by the Romans over the province of Judea, and he was a puppet king, and he reigned from 37 BC until 4 BC, around 41 or so years. Now, Herod the Great was a dirty politician. To get what he wants, he's willing to do anything. To win the favor of the Romans, the ruling power at the time, he carried out lavish building projects in Israel and named cities about after the Roman emperors, like you have Caesarea Philippi, that's after Caesar. Now, to show the Romans that he was ruling well, he had to win the favor of the Jews. He had to do something to, for, to get their cooperation. And so to carry the favor of the Jews, he upgraded, renovated, and enlarged the temple of Jerusalem, which was very important to the Jews. Herod, according to history, had ten wives and many children. He was cruel, he was selfish, unjust, deceptive, and very protective of his power. He executed, or he put to death, one of his wives and his three eldest sons because he felt he suspected them to be plotting against him to take away the throne from him. Imagine having a king who's willing to kill his wife and his three children just to remain power. Oh, you're complaining of someone in power right now? You did not know what those people then were experiencing. Of course, many of us who were reading the Bible know that it was Herod the Great who ordered the massacre of baby boys two years old and below so that he could get rid of the Lord Jesus, the baby Jesus, who he felt was a threat to his throne. This is the kind of king that ruled during the fullness of time that Galatians 4 was speaking about. The political situation was bad. Now let's go to Luke 1, 16 to 17, to find out what kind of time was this fullness of time. These verses describe the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one anointed by God to prepare the coming of the Savior. And this would be his ministry. It says, He, John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And by logic, that means that many Israelites, many Jews, their hearts are away from God. You get what? By logic, ministry of John the Baptist is to turn the children of Israel back to God. That means they were away from God. Another thing, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, meaning or implication that many parents don't care about their children at that time. Weird, huh? And then to make ready people prepared, means the people were not prepared, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, meaning many people during that time in the nation of Israel were living foolishly, ignoring 
divine wisdom. And if you read the Gospels, you would find out that the religious leaders at the time, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, they, most of them were hypocrites and corrupt. And so the spiritual condition at that time was bad. Lastly, John 1 verse 10 speaks about the Lord. And it says, He was in the world. Jesus was in the world. And the world was made through Him. The world was made through Jesus because He's the Word of God. And yet, the world did not know Him. The world as a whole did not know God. And most people of the world were following and worshipping false gods like the Roman Emperor Caesar or, or the Roman gods like Jupiter, uh, Mercury, you know, idolatry, immorality, and violence was rampant during those times. And so, to put it all in all, almost everything was bad during the fullness of time. It was bad economically, politically, spiritually, and morally. The fullness of time was a dark time, a difficult time, and a dangerous time. The right time for the Lord to come into the world, perhaps, was one of the worst times, so to speak. And that was the very intention and plan of God. That was the very wisdom of God. The Messiah came when it was darkest. He was born when it was very difficult. He drew he came to draw people near to God when people are so far away from God. And the right time for the Savior to come was when the people of Israel and the people of the world desperately needed a Savior. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. What encouragement can we get from all of this? Here is the encouragement and assurance for us who believe in God, and who are patiently waiting for Him. When we think nothing is going to happen, something is going to happen. When people think that God is not doing anything, God will do something amazing or unimaginable. The Lord said, My Father is working until now, and I too am working. When we think all is lost, goodness is gained. When we feel it is too late, or it is too dark, or it is too bad, then God does what He only does best. He shows up, He saves, and blesses His people. As Paul explains it in Romans 8.28, God causes or works all things for the good of those who love Him. That's why... For the Christian, it is always good in the end. So if it is not yet good for you, it's not yet the end. Second, the fullness of time, according to our text, we're just sticking with our text, was a time of redemption and adoption. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Why? Verse 5 says, To redeem those who were under the law. So the fullness of time was a time for redemption. And then in verse 5, the second half says, So that we might receive adoption as sons. So 
to the fullness of time was a time of adoption. Let's talk about this too briefly. We talk about redemption a number of times before in several passages of scripture, but we need to talk about it again because it's mentioned in our text. Redemption means to buy back something, to pay a ransom, to set someone or something free from captivity, uh, from hostage, something. And during those times in the New Testament, redemption applies strongly in people's minds and heart when it comes to slavery. Because slavery was legal, was rampant, and was common during those times. There are masters, and there are slaves and servants. During those times, a slave will try to work hard and earn in order to pay for his freedom, to buy his freedom from his master, and it's called the redemption price. But most servants could not save and earn enough because the price was too high. Often, they would need to befriend or gain the favor of a rich and powerful Roman citizen in order to pay that redemption price for them. And so our text says, we were under the dominion of sin. We were under the curse of the law of God because we are habitual and persistent lawbreakers. But God redeemed us by sending His Son. The Lord Jesus, the Son, redeemed us by shedding His blood on the cross to free us from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. He shed His blood to redeem us from the curse of the law. And when he has done so, the Holy Spirit would witness in our hearts, telling us we are no longer slaves, but children. And if children, then heirs, according to our text. That's why verse 7 says, Because God sent for his son, you are no longer a slave. And then there's this concept of adoption. Paul, in the context of the letter, his letter to the Galatians, speaks of God's people as being under the supervision of the law. So Paul is saying that during those times, the heir, the son, or the eldest son of, of a rich person, he is the heir of that person. But as long as he's a child, he's under adult supervision. Until he reaches the age of maturity, he cannot enjoy the power and riches of his father until a child reaches that age of maturity, he is under, under adult supervision, and a child under supervision, according to Paul, is like a slave. But the coming of the Lord Jesus commences the age of maturity, the fullness of time, when God's people are weaned from the supervision of the law, and God places His laws in their hearts and His spirits in their being, and they become children of God. The Lord fulfilled His promise in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I'll change your heart of stone and I'll put, I'll write my laws in your hearts and I'll give you a right spirit. The Lord Jesus processed and completed our adoption into the family of God and the Holy Spirit seals our adoption by coming to our hearts, witnessing to our spirit that we are God's children and through Him we could address God not just as Almighty One, but as Abba, or Father. If you belong to Jesus, you can call God your Father. And here's the wonder. 
in God's family as it was in ancient times, there is no difference in being a natural child and an adopted child. No difference. Nowadays, you, an adopted child feels insecure. Sometimes, Sometimes the adopted adopt parents will not tell the child that he is adopted until he's mature so that he will not feel insecure. But in God's family, there is no distinction of affection in the divine family. In fact, the Lord Jesus said in John 16, 27, The Father himself loves you because you love me and believe that I came from God. Make no mistake, if you have received Christ as Lord and Savior, the Father loves you as a child. And there's more. These are the very words of Jesus. I did, I did not make this up. In John 17, in the so-called high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus was talking to the Father. He's talking to the Father about us Christians, about his followers. And this is what he says. I in them, I in Christians, and you, Father, in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and here goes, and love them, even she loved me. Oh, when I read this verse, it blew my mind. Bible, or Jesus, you mean to say, that God loves me as much as he loves Jesus? Perhaps that's the Lord, what's, that is why the book of Hebrews says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And that's why many times Paul would say in his letters, if we are children of God, then we are co-heirs with Christ. Hello? We receive the same benefits. It, it blows my mind. But what John 17 is saying, because the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in us, then the Father loves us as He loves Jesus. I love how J.I. Packer puts it. This is what he says. I'll read verbatim. If God in love has made Christians His children, and if He is a perfect Father, and He is a perfect Father, two things would seem to follow. Two things. Number one, family relationship must be an abiding one, lasting forever. Perfect parents do not cast off their children. Christians may act as prodigals. They would sometimes disobey and run away from God. But God will not cease to be the prodigal's father. What is he saying? I think what it's, it's, it's what Paul says. Even if we are faithless, he is faithful for he cannot disown himself. Second thing that J.A. Packer says about adoption. God, adopted children need assurance that they belong. And that's true, right? If a person learned that he is, if a child learns he's an adopted child, he would feel insecure. He would feel a second-rate child in the family. But here's what J.A. Packer said. Adopted children need assurance that they belong. A perfect parent will not withhold that assurance, God will go out of His way to make His adopted children feel love for them and know their privileges and security as members of His family. God is a perfect parent. The very concept of adoption proves and guarantees our salvation in Christ because 
Only bad fathers throw their children out of the family, cast them out. But God is not a bad father. And as we sing from time to time, our God is a very, very good, good father. The fullness of time. When people thought that God has forgotten them, they realized that God has all along been thinking of them and working out His plans for their good. When they felt nothing will change, God came to redeem them. When it seems that they were abandoned, God comes and adopts them as His very children. Third is, this is the thing that I could not understand, but that I would only, I understand a bit, but not fully, uh, because He's omnipotent, but Bible clearly teaches that God waited for the fullness of time. Uh, I, I read a fan story that, that happened in one of the local churches. Uh, the children were rehearsed again and again for the Christmas story. So the children came to memorize their lines. And during the presentation, the boy who played the innkeeper in the Christmas story said to Joseph and Mary, there is no room for you at the inn. And then the people were shocked and then broke into laughter. When the boy playing Mary said, or when the boy playing Joseph said to Mary, I told you to make reservations. I told you to make reservations. Here's the thing. Where was Jesus born? What was he dressed in when he came? Luke 2 says, Jesus was born in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes because God forgot to make reservations for his son. But is that possible? Could the almighty, all-knowing God, could it be that the manger, stable, and the swaddling clothes were the reservations? Paul would write later on, I don't remember, it's 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, who says, For you know the grace of God, that even though Christ was rich, He became poor for your sakes, so that through His poverty, you might become rich. God waited for the fullness of time to bless and rescue His children. There is a very enlightening verse, at least for me, especially if you feel being left out. In the dark. Isaiah 13 verse 18. If you could turn your Bibles. Whether it's old school. Like this. Or electronic. It would be. It's a nice verse. Maybe some of you can make it a sure life verse. It's a wonderful verse. Isaiah 13 verse 18. It says. Therefore. The Lord. Waits. To be gracious to you. And therefore. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. This is something that our human brains would never perhaps to connect or fully resolve. God does not have to wait. But we know that he often waits. Even in the Genesis. He could have finished creating the whole universe in one day. Why did he take time? 
why they simply followed an order or a planned schedule. It took him six days plus one to complete the work of creation when we know he could do it in just one day. God does not have to wait. He is omnipotent and omnipresent. He can do whatever he wants except to sin. But in his omniscience, in his very sovereign wisdom, he waits for the right time. For the fullness of time. Maybe it has something to do with justice. Our text says, or Isaiah 30 says, For God, for the Lord is a God of justice. And there is a right time for justice. We, you and I know that. Perhaps it has something to do with mercy. Isaiah 30 says, He exalts himself to show mercy to you, and mercy is patient. Or perhaps it has something to do with this meaningful relationship he desires for you and me with him. Because a meaningful relationship blossoms and develops when both parties learn to wait for each other. Imagine a man and his wife not willing to wait for each other. The relationship cannot blossom. Relationship blossoms when both parties are willing to wait for each other. And as God waits for us, we wait for Him. Now you know that in Genesis chapter 3, it tells us of the tragic story when our first parents, tells of the fall of man, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed the one and only commandment God gave them. You know, if you look at Genesis, unlike now, God has many commandments because we became worse. But during those times, God gave them everything they need and just one commandment. That they must not eat of a certain food in the garden. So despite all the goodness of God, in spite of bringing them into paradise, in spite of this fellowship with God, our first parents sinned against the Lord, believed the devil, and broke God's heart. And the only commandment he gave them. And so because the wages of sin is death, we read in Genesis 3, God pronounced judgment on the woman, on the man, and on the serpent. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we are shocked to find out that while God was dishing out judgment and punishment for sin, He comes up with a promise. The promise of salvation. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he, the offspring of the woman, shall crush your head. And you shall strike his heel. And you know who is this offspring of the woman that is being mentioned here. Paul would mention it. I don't know if it's Galatians. It's the Lord Jesus. Because on the cross, Jesus crushed the devil. He defeated the devil. Although the devil was able to hurt him badly. And we find in Genesis 3.15, this prototype of the gospel. Proto-Evangelion, or the first announcement or hint of the gospel. Now stay with me. So God made a promise he would send a salvation or savior for the world. And from time to time, the Lord would rehearse this promise. He would reveal this promise in the succeeding generations. In Genesis 12, he told Abram, And in you, all the families of the world shall be blessed. And Paul says in Galatians that this seed of Abram 
through whom all the families of the world are blessed is the Lord Jesus. And then in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, the Lord spoke to Moses in front of the people. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth. And then Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, says that this prophet who was like Moses was no other than the Lord Jesus. In the book of Psalms, there are many messianic verses, prophecies about the Messiah. That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That he would be, uh, he would, uh, his, none of his bones would be broken. And then in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, God drops a hint. He gives us the birthplace of the Messiah in saying, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, even though you're the least among the towns in, in Judah, out of you will come king, ruler of Israel. And then we have these verses, these Christmas verses in the prophet Isaiah's book, Isaiah 14. And the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then last week we have Isaiah 9, 6-7, where it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and we know that speaks of the Lord Jesus. What is my point? My point is, ever since God gave that promise in Genesis 3.15, he never forgot that promise. It's in his mind. And he rehearses it and reveals it in the succeeding generation, waiting for the fullness of time, for the right time, to fulfill that promise. Way, way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And we know that he fulfilled it during the first Christmas when he sent the Savior of the world, his very son, the Lord Jesus. God waited with His people. God waited for His people. And even when His people got tired of waiting, God waited for the right time and continued to wait for His people. In fact, we could say the story of Christmas is a story about waiting. And we find this attitude of waiting in many of the characters in the Christmas story. There's Zechariah and Elizabeth. They waited for a long time for a child. But unfortunately, Zechariah got tired of waiting. And if you know the story, while Zechariah was ministering in the temple, an angel appeared and says, you will have a son. And because he got tired of waiting, he did not believe. He did not speak until that miracle baby boy became John the Baptist who was born. And there's Simeon. You know Simeon? God revealed to him that he will not Die that the Lord will not take him to heaven until he saw the promised Messiah. And so here comes Joseph and Mary with the baby Jesus to dedicate him to the temple. And the Holy Spirit spoke to Simon. That's the baby. And then there's the prophetess Anna. And then there is, of course, God himself. That is perhaps, I don't know why, but that is perhaps why we have this, this season of Advent. You know what's Advent? Advent is those four Sundays. It's a period of time before Christmas. Advent is a time of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. God waited and still waits. Why cannot we do the same? In fact, whether you like it or not, the Christian life is a constant waiting on the Lord and waiting for the Lord. Yes, even as God reveals to us things at the right time. 
Yes, even as He provides for our needs at the right time, even as He rescues and blesses us at the right time, we still constantly wait on Him even as He waits for us. The Christian life is a constant waiting. As we celebrate Christmas, let us remember that the waiting is not yet over. We're still waiting. We're waiting for the Lord, for Him to fulfill His promises in His Word. We're waiting for His second coming. Or we're simply waiting for Him to take us home in heaven where we could see Him face to face and spend eternity. And Philippians 1, 6 says, or implies that we are waiting for the Lord to finish or complete the good work He began in our lives. And this will all happen when? In the fullness of time. Let me read to you two verses to support that claim. Ephesians 1, 9, 10. Paul was writing here. He says, God made, to us, God made known to us the mystery of His will. And what is that will? Which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Sometimes when I watch movies, I get angry when people really say bad things about Jesus Christ. And sometimes I say, Lord, why don't you just make their nose longer a bit? You know? Why don't you strike them just, just near their noses? But the Bible says there will come a time when God will put everything and unite all things under Christ in heaven and earth. When will that happen? According to Ephesians 1, 9-10, in the fullness of time. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 13-15, Paul's writing to Timothy and to the church that Timothy was pastoring. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. When will that happen? Which He will display at the proper time or in the fullness of time. Somebody said that God's delays are not God's denials. But our text today seems to suggest that God's delays are not really delays. To us, they feel and seem that they are delays, but to God, they are fullness of time. Fullness of time because we're not God, because His thoughts are not our thoughts, and our ways are not His ways, because His thoughts are way above our thoughts, and His ways are way above our ways, like the heavens are higher than the earth. We cannot always know or understand fully this idea of God's fullness of even for the specific situations in your life. God promised to provide for your need. God promised to heal you. God promised to rescue you in the fullness of time. We, sometimes we cannot understand that. Sometimes God gives us a clue. Sometimes we know that we are now at the end of the tunnel. God gives us a clue that the fullness of time, the right time for God to fulfill His word in our life is coming. But sometimes He is not. And we're just taken by surprise. It does not often reveal the fullness of time, the time he has set by his sovereign wisdom 
to fulfill His promise and to make His work evident until it's about to happen. And when we cannot understand this fullness of time, God wants us to do what He's doing. Wait on Him as He waits for us. Learn to trust Him, learn from Him, and to wait for Him patiently. Hey, the Lord is waiting to be gracious to you. He's waiting to exalt Himself, to show that He's God, to show mercy to you. Because He's a God of justice. Therefore, blessed are those Let's pray. The fullness of time, Lord. Fullness of time. Sometimes that fullness of time is long time in coming, Lord sometimes get impatient or we get rattled. But help us to wait with you. For you never fail. You never break your word. You always do what you said you would. Pray for all of us here as we endure perhaps for the first time in our lives a different kind of Christmas time of Christmas when we cannot gather with our loved ones, even families and brothers and sisters in the Lord whom we have not hugged or shaken hands for 10 months now, and we miss that, Lord. We miss that. We thank you for the technology of Zoom or Facebook Live, but nothing beats actual or physical fellowship. But you allow this pandemic to happen for a purpose. But there will come a fullness of time when you will end it. Help us to wait with you and wait for you. I pray, Lord God, for strength for those who are feeling weak, encouragement for those who are encouragement. For those who are going through tough times now, when it comes to health, economy, or just plain loneliness, or just plain weakness, or uh, frustration. Would you, this Christmas, as we celebrate it, would you just wrap your arms around many of us or all of us and assure us that the fullness time is going to happen and you will do what you promised to do. Or would you encourage us? Would you inspire us? Would you touch us in the bottom of our being and allow us to experience your presence. Kind of an assurance that it's going to happen in the fullness of time. As we wait for your return, as we wait for us to call us home, as we wait to, for you to fulfill the vision you have placed in our church and in our lives, maybe wait with you as you wait with us. Thank you, Lord God, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, and People did not expect you sent the Lord Jesus. Oh, when Jesus came, no one expected. No one. But you came. And often you do that, Lord. You come when you are least expected to come. But we fix our eyes on you. Strengthen us. Bless us. 
as we worship you and celebrate Christmas in four days, Lord God. Bless these people. Bless those whom we have the opportunity to minister and share with. Thank you, Lord God, for sending your Son. In Christ's name we pray.